0: We are in what is known as the double tradition. Now, if you remember, the triple tradition is where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three agree, at least to a large percent on their wording, i.e. it's clear that Matthew and Luke are quoting Mark, at least substantively. Luke uh, cleaning up grammar and vocabulary, or word order. Matthew sometimes embellishing a little bit here and there, making adjustments. But for the most part, Matthew and Luke are basing what they're writing on Mark. Sometimes changing the order, sometimes not. We have now come to a portion of the synoptics, which are known as the double tradition, where Matthew and Luke are quoting something else, not Mark. This will be an interesting mixture of literature because some places Matthew and Luke are dealing with their source the same, i.e. they're copying it almost identically. Other places they're doing it loosely. They're not quoting directly but they are paraphrasing, they're interpreting, they're expanding upon, they're shortening, they're adjusting it. There will be a few places over the next few weeks that we will read where there is something in Mark that has occasioned both Matthew and Luke to tack on material from their other source at that point. Something that Jesus says in Mark echoes what is in the saying source, but much more expanded. And so Matthew and Luke both use the saying source to supplement what Mark says. We'll see that immediately after the Beatitudes. But I wanted to step back and recover the Beatitudes again. I wanted to hand out a printout of them parallel. So here we have Matthew. Here, I think I've got enough. We've got Matthew. Here, just pass them over. Matthew and Luke side by side in the the beginning portion of the Beatitudes. Is there enough for everybody? We have Matthew 3, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 12 on the left, and Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26 on the right. And we have essentially some of the most famous parts of the teaching material of Jesus and what makes up probably the core of, of the saying source, i.e. this is what a lot of the saying source looked like before Matthew and Luke got around to editing it. Here you get to see Luke in his full-fledged editing, and you get to see Matthew copying and interpreting. So, just taking a look at Matthew and Luke side-by-side side here, you'll, you'll notice, just, just just look at Matthew, beginning at chapter 5, verse 3. Just Just look at Matthew. Anybody who is at all familiar with the Gospels, at all familiar with hearing the sayings of Jesus, knows this passage. If you've watched any movies of the life of Jesus, you see Jesus up on the mount giving this. Even in the life of Brian by Monty Python, Jesus is up there giving this speech at one point. And, of course, the Jews in the very back of the crowd are arguing over what they're hearing him say or not say. And it's absolutely wonderful because it kind of illustrates what we kind of have going on here where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And the people in the back thought he said Greek. <laughs> or blessed are the peacemakers, and the people in the back thought he said, Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> and one of them said, Cheesemakers. And his her husband said, That's not supposed to be taken literally, dear. That's a metaphor for anyone involved in the production of dairy products. (laughs) I mean, it's made its way into our cultural ethos both seriously, morally, on the one hand, and humorously on the other. And that humorous actually reflects, in a sense, kind of the thing that happened here. You have... The articulations of Jesus not just being regurgitated onto paper, but taken and applied and interpreted and and given new meaning to a new community in a new setting in a new place with new problems, new concerns and that's what you have in both Matthew and Luke, not in one as opposed to the other. But in both Matthew and Luke you have each of them in their own circumstance to their own culture in their own place, reading and interpreting and applying this to their own setting and their own people, for instance. Notice Matthew contains a nice huge chunk from three through eight, and it's it's quick. it's, it's, It's short, pithy little statements Each one is powerful. Each one is reflective of wisdom, teaching. Each one needs to be taken seriously. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Notice, the language here is serious. It's concrete. It's not wishy-washy. It's not hopefulness. It is our will, 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 will. Isn't that interesting? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. Not theirs will become the kingdom of heaven, or they will get the kingdom of heaven, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven implying that they're in it now even though they are poor in spirit theirs is the kingdom of heaven but then it switches to future tense blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted in other words poverty in spirit isn't necessarily contradictory to being part of the kingdom of god so matthew's understanding of the statement about poverty in spirit must not necessarily be something that contradicts being part of the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. All right? Whereas, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted is a recognition that you may be mourning now, but that doesn't last forever. That's good news for anybody who's mourning for any reason. You've lost a loved one, a child, a husband, a parent, you may be mourning now, but that mourning does not last forever. It may feel like it at the moment, but it does not last forever. They will be comforted. So right there you got good news. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, now come on. Who the heck wants to be the meek inheriting the earth? What does meek mean? What is the meaning of the word meek? I don't know the meaning of
1: Passive? Passive? You know,
0: not daring, whatever. Not, not daring, you. kind of uh, uh, milk toast and bland and you know, a doormat kind of like visual. Remember Mr. Peepers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's meek. That's meek, isn't it? N-uh. I do you call them the nerds, but they're, the nerds
2: don't necessarily
0: mean <laughs> well, meek. Well, nerd, nerds, nerds in a more modern sense, but even they really aren't meek because yeah. they end up being Bill Gates. <laughs> oh, <holy laughs> and yes, they, they are the rich <laughs> um, the, the word meek in Greek here This is remember this comes from Greek this is a translation of the Greek New Testament and the word used here is an equestrian word a word used for horses that have been tamed to a bridle and can be controlled wow Is a horse that has been tamed to the bridle and can be controlled for pulling a a cart or for riding? Is that horse weak and a doormat and 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 not forceful? No, it's strong. It's powerful. Otherwise, you wouldn't be taming it. It's strong. It's powerful, but it's under control. Its strength. Its force. Its character, its nature, is under the control of a master. In this case, God. Blessed are the tamed by God, for they will inherit the earth, is a better translation of meek here. Blessed are those whose whole nature and character is under the guidance of God's grace, peace, mercy, love, nature. For theirs, for they, will inherit the earth.
2: That I guess, sure makes
1: more sense. Yeah.
0: What is this business about inheriting the earth if you're meek and mild? Nuh-uh. But if you are part of what it means to be the presence of God for others, if you are God's hands and feet and eyes and ears and lips, If you express the love of God to others, if if everything that you do comes under the governance of God's grace, God's nature, God's power, God's wisdom, God's control, then you will indeed inherit the earth. So, I mean, that's, that's one of my favorite passages to preach from here because it does preach powerfully. It doesn't say you're a doormat which is what the world wants us to think. Well, this would be very powerful. for, And there is a way to go back into the Aramaic, the original language this was spoken in, and that phrase contained the same meaning. Even though this was in Greek, it's translated from the Aramaic way back in the 50s or 40s AD. And at that point in time, there is a way to get it back into that language or from that language into Greek and then into English to contain that meaning. The problem is in English and in how we've come to understand the word meek from Middle English to today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's a very Jewish conception, isn't it? Remember, Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is something that they believe they are all, all are called to do, to be hungering and thirsting for Righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, we can think of multiple examples of that throughout the Gospels. This is sort of the launching pad in Matthew for that concept. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, another aspect of that righteousness. So here we have a collection of, of powerful sayings, placed in either the present or the future tense, that articulate the spiritual emotional relational character of disciples of of these people about whom jesus is speaking and matthew has taken it and done some adjusting and we can see that by comparison with luke so now let's look at luke and i want to warn you luke is a whole lot briefer than matthew and it's not just because it's shorter on this page It's a heck of a lot shorter. Take a look at, beginning at verse 20 of Luke chapter 6. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And that is it. Until you Skip the next little piece down to verse 26. And then you get something that's more similar to the end of Luke. Well, 22 22 and 23, sorry. Once you get past 23... Blessed are you you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for surely your reward is great in heaven for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets there. That compares there to the end of Matthew uh, verses 11 and 12. But what follows that verses 24 and 25 is very different. There's a lot missing, isn't there? Where is... Okay, let's look at verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That equates to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice there's a difference, though. Luke is more direct, more short, more literal. Blessed are you who are poor. Not poor in spirit, but poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Both maintain the present tense. Being part of the kingdom of God is not contradicted by being poor. Wow. Huh. I mean, something more important than riches is involved in being part of the kingdom of God. Matthews can be understood both figuratively and literally, by the way, because remember... The Jews operated out of this Deuteronomic theology, which said that if you're rich, you've done something good to be rich. If you're poor, you've done something bad and are being punished. All right? Or you're being oppressed for what your ancestors did, or something similar along those lines. And it could be said that blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, that may also relate back to being poor physically. So you can see a level of Deuteronomic theology functioning here in Matthew if you wish but what's more important is to see how Matthew has tacked on in spirit more likely what Jesus originally said was blessed are you who are poor more direct, more literal which would have certain theological implications but blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God the essence is the same even if Matthew's is easier to apply to every day look at the next line blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be filled now, now where's the parallel for that
1: hungry thirst after, after it, five? yeah
0: he has he has take, Matthew has taken this and theolo- theologized it again Instead of, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled, as in physical hunger, Matthew has gone and made it a spiritual. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So, 21a parallels to 5, 6, where Matthew has taken and done exactly to it what he did to 620b you see now look at the second half of 21 blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh where's the parallel for that 5-4 exactly that is a little more direct I mean Matthew has not done a whole lot of adjusting on that one mourning and weeping are kind of the same thing you're talking a very similar kind of emotional content so there's not been much adjustment now in, in here from from Luke to, to Matthew. Luke is quoting more directly from his source, from their source. Matthew's quoting from it and interpreting it. Okay? So at this point, 20 and 21 are more of a direct quote from Q, whereas Matthew in 5, in, in, in 3, in 4, and in 6. Matthew's interpreting. Now, looking, let, let's, let's skip 22 and 23 and just ask a question in, from Luke. Where's the rest of the material that Matthew quotes?
1: Another source, I
0: guess. And Luke doesn't quote it. Luke's not quoting it. Luke doesn't cite it. Luke does not quote Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He doesn't quote it anywhere. It's nowhere in his gospel. He doesn't quote, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. However, the principle is there, and he does tell stories that reflect that teaching, but he doesn't put it here in this sermon. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He doesn't quote that either. Huh. I wonder why. Why might Luke... Writing to a Gentile audience, himself being a Gentile, not cite, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. Keeping in mind that he wouldn't necessarily be opposed to the ideas. Why might he not cite them here? Thoughts?
1: I would say on one hand, he's... That... uh, they're calling him these people conceited. That's why he's shifts it around the other way. Don't be conceited because you are rich and all that because you're not going to have that forever.
0: Uh, I'm going to pick up on what you just said. Rich. This, the reason, there are lots of reasons why Luke may not be quoting all of what Matthew's quoting here. Let me be blunt. Most scholars of this subject, and I agree with them, believe that Matthew is quoting more completely this section of the saying source. Probably quoting it completely with adjustments. Whereas Luke is picking and choosing for a specific reason related more to his audience and more to his theological program, his theme And his sourcing and how he orders things in his gospel usually is devised, controlled by, determined by his objective, much more so than Matthew. Matthew is two, but Luke, you can define it better because he's writing to a Gentile audience in part, and we're Gentiles. So we pick it up a little easier. But here we can identify it specifically. Notice what's true about all three. In Luke, poor, hungry, and weeping. What what might that reflect in both the ancient Near Eastern community in which Jesus lived and taught, and in a Gentile Christian community in Asia Minor or Greece? Both are being oppressed. The Jewish community that that Jesus was in was being oppressed by the Roman occupation forces. They were Jews under occupation. So the context for him speaking these words to them is that. These people are being oppressed by the occupation armies of the Roman Empire. Whereas Luke, writing to a Gentile community of Christians are amongst the community of Gentiles who are the most oppressed in their culture and society. First of all, they're not Jews. Because they're not Jews, they're not covered by the Jewish exemption from having to sacrifice to the Emperor. The Jews had an exemption because they were monotheists and they were the only, well among the only people in the empire who were monotheist and therefore could not make sacrifice to the emperor the jews were given a dispensation and allowed not to do that at various points and times in the roman empire Uh, these gentiles weren't jews here they were christians but they weren't jews they didn't get the traditional exemption so if they didn't sacrifice to the emperor they were considered traitors They were considered people who were not loyal to the empire, even though many of them were loyal to the empire as an institution went. Because they weren't willing to sacrifice to the emperor, they were judged to be uh, traitors. And at this point in time, when Luke is writing, the church has already gone through a couple of phases of persecution from the Roman Empire and persecution from the Jewish community, which has rejected them. So here we have people who are literally poor and feeling like they've been excluded from the kingdom of God because they've been thrown out of the synagogues they're no longer allowed to be part of the Jewish communities uh, and they are poor because they cannot involve themselves in the temple worship which is part and parcel of the ancient world um, they're hungry because they are poor and they are weeping because they are poor and hungry they are being oppressed because of their religious stance. Hence, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on the account of the Son of Man, on the account of Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. What he is doing is he is taking the statement from Jesus, which was crafted to give hope and, and an encouragement on both a physical and spiritual level to people who are being oppressed by Roman occupation and applying it to people who are being oppressed by the Romans for being Christians and by the Jews for being Christians. All right? So the context from the original statement of Jesus to Luke's day has shifted, but the problem remains the same. So Luke is able to quote it more completely. Now in Matthew's day, and the people to whom Matthew is writing, they've been thrown out of the synagogues and there's a great big conflict between the Matthian Christians and and the Jews in in, in their day. Um, But he is just pulling the whole mass of it more directly and then interpreting the whole thing for people who are living in a Jewish context still. These Gentiles aren't living in a Jewish context anymore. The 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 the, the Jews now Jewish Christians they are to an extent. Um, you know. Um,
2: yes. I guess we're telling our age, but most of us grew up on Matthews' line, and I sure. can remember that better than I can not lose.
0: Oh no, that's absolutely correct, and <laughs> oh, that's not age. This. That's not a matter. That's not a matter of, of age most christians in in 20th century america 21st century now america hear no respond better to matthew and here's a good reason for it matthew is more easily applied to your average everyday 20th or 21st century christian than luke is luke is more dependent upon circumstance Matthew is more general, hence poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering for righteousness, mercy, pure in heart. These themes can be more easily applied across cultural settings even, but more importantly across socioeconomic settings, even to people who are not being oppressed. Hence In Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That statement right there is a powerful statement but it's linked to a circumstance of persecution and oppression and opposition that we don't really know about anymore. Not really I mean, you've got to go to certain places on the planet where Christianity is a minority faith and where it is illegal to practice your religion out in the open to find something like this. You've got to go to India for certain parts of the Middle East.
1: Don't you think to find uh, this. that we've sort of, Matthew, we sort of memorized that and really don't stop to think what it says? Of course. And uh, Luke actually says what we think. Better.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. Matthew kind of feels better. Yeah,
1: you just memorize it. You
0: know? Yeah. Matthew feels better. Luke has a stronger impact in your head, it has a, in our heads. I, I will make an argument to you that people in the third world, poverty stricken third world, people in Africa, people in middle, uh, Central America, when they read Luke, that hits them in their heart whereas Matthew probably hits them in their head inverted I'm serious our circumstances will determine how to receive it notice something that the two authors did Matthew says in verse 12 of chapter 5 rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you notice what Luke does in 23b for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets it's a little it's it's almost the same but it's been slightly adjusted a bit to take it one step removed from their context luke is writing to gentiles making reference to them jews who did it to their prophets <laughs> interesting okay
1: well they would feel no guilt for what the jewish people did
0: correct a long
1: time ago correct
0: <laughs> correct now let's take a look at something that luke does and this today is almost an entire review but i think it, it it's been needed look at take a look at what luke does at between the beginning section verses 20 through 21 and the second section 24, and 25. You could also do 26, but let's just do 24, 25. I'm going to read the blessings and the woes. Okay? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Now, these woes, are they in Matthew? No. Matthew doesn't contain them. Matthew doesn't cite them. Matthew doesn't quote them at all. Does that mean that it's something that Matthew, that, that was in cue that Matthew decided not to quote? Probably not. What we have here is more Luke's interpretation and application of the preceding verses. Just as Matthew was willing to adjust the wording a bit to make the passage more universal, so now Luke is willing to literally
2: draft
0: a whole section to interpret the earlier section. The woes are theologically sound, but it's probably the production of Luke's own brilliance. Notice each one is parallel. Did you notice that? Mm -hmm. Exactly parallel. With an interesting note, Take a look at the very first one. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Shouldn't verse 24 we read, but woe to you who are rich, for yours is not the kingdom of God. And that's what, isn't that how it should read? It doesn't. It doesn't read that way. It says, for you have received your consolation. You have received your consolation that's different than saying you're out of luck. Isn't it? That's very different from that. Why don't you think, look look, look at the other two. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. An exact reversal. And one that we don't want to hear. I mean, after Thanksgiving dinner, I was full. I thought I'd never be hungry again. (laughs) But just a day or two later, I was hungry again. And then you eat, and then you're not hungry anymore. It's part of the nature of the cycle of life. You're full, then you're hungry, then you're hungry, then you're full. It's what we go through. Ditto for the next passage. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. The good news is, if you're mourning, if you're you're crying, if you're weeping, it's not going to last forever. You will come out of this. The flip side of that is, if you're having a party now, don't expect the party to keep going. You will mourn and weep. Things may be going great this moment, but they won't always keep going great. That's not what we want to hear, is it? That's why it's woe.
1: It's depressing.
0: (laughs) But it's a part of the cycle of life. It's part of nature. It is a spiritual principle. If you're hungry now, you you will be filled. If you are full now, you will be hungry. And it is also, if if you're mourning now you will eventually come out in the morning. And that's the good news. And it's also a spiritual principle. If you're having a glorious time now, guess what? That also will end. So don't, don't seat all of your, your self-worth and what's going on in the moment in being full or being happy or being rich.
1: might he also be telling them that if they're christians that if they happen to be rich right now their persecution is going to endure and in a few years if you're okay right now it's going to be bad for you
0: could very well be you've you've got your console you, the fact that you were rich is all the consolation you're going to get because you're going to lose it Hence, he gives meaning to verses 22 and 23. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to take everything. Where it says, for this is what their ancestors did to the prophets. One of the things their ancestors did to the prophets was strip them bare of everything. When they brought a message they didn't want to hear. And that could very well be. You know, you, you, you may be rich. You may have physical riches now. Uh, that isn't going to last forever. Whereas he doesn't say, Blessed are you who are poor, for you will become rich. He, he doesn't say that. That's the flip side of the alternative sequence. He doesn't say that. You wish he kind of did. Yeah. Man, I wish he did. But he says something better. Yours is the kingdom of God. But what he doesn't say to the rich is... Which is what he should in the parallel. Yours is not the kingdom of God. Now, you can go to elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus takes that wonderful story and says that it will be easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter paradise. You can use that as your basis for that claim. I mean, and and, and that's not a metaphorical statement. It wasn't there. There was some gate in the walls of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and you could only get a camel through if you took the packs off. And that wasn't, and it wasn't about a camel's thick hair and the eye of a needle that you got to kind of get. No, no, we're talking camel needle eye. Go through it. Literally impossible to do. And uh, that, that's a fantastic basis for preaching about riches and wealth he's not doing it here Luke's not doing it here you'd think he would if he's just beaten on the rich that's not, his, that's not his objective but he is warning the rich you've had your consolation you've had all you're going to get there's not going to be any more physical riches. What's more important is what the poor are receiving. Excuse me. What the poor have now, which is the kingdom of God.
1: Could just go back to where you started there? Luke is interpreting one way that Jesus is speaking... To one group that's in, let's say, in power now, and they, they, you do as I say, you're a good Jew or whatever. Where Matthew is going the other way and said, "Hey, wait a minute, uh, you don't have this now." He's he's talking to two different audiences.
0: There is why it's both. Are, they're both talking to two separate audiences. Right? Well, excuse me. Matthew's talking to his audience. Luke's talking to his audience. Within Luke's audience, you have different groups within Matthew's audience there are two but we can't really see them articulated within this but we can within what Luke wrote they're both quoting from the same source but they're using the source differently i want to make that very clear that's the re- that's part of the biggest part of the reason for going through this material again to point out that they're both willing felt completely free to quote and adjust to apply it to their context, to quote and leave out, to apply it to their context, and to draft interpretive phrasing like the woes parallel to the blessings in order to apply it to its context. A context which is different in one point yet has similarities to the original context in which Jesus articulated it. I think, now there's a question as to whether or not Jesus said blessed are the meek and blessed are those who are are merciful for they will receive mercy and blessed are the pure in heart. I think there's no question that Jesus said something quite a lot like that. Yes, Matthew's probably interpreting it slightly as he copies it down out of Q. The fact that Luke doesn't contain it doesn't mean that it wasn't in Q and that Jesus didn't say it. I I don't think that's accurate.
2: But you know, in history, the Jews have been a whole lot more persecuted even today, still, someone is still picking on them, which is, which is a shame.
0: You kind of wonder what would have happened. I mean, this is history. But, you know, remember what happened when UN Resolution 242 was passed, and David ben Gurion declared the state of Israel? And gold the air went to King Faisal. King Faisal said, don't declare your statehood. Just be part of Jordan. Stay part of Transjordan, and I'll protect you. And Golda Meir said, we want to be free, and the UN is saying we can be free and independent. And then she gave him a warning. She said, if you let us live in peace, we will live in peace according to the boundaries of UN Resolution 242, and we will live in peace with you if you will live in peace with us. But if you attack us and try to kill us, we will fight. And what we take, we keep. (laughs) And until recently, that's been true. (laughs) And remember what happened? They declared independence, and almost immediately, Egypt and Syria and Lebanon and Transjordan and Saudi Arabia all attacked at once and the unexpected happened. Israel managed to, to repel the invading forces. and ended up with a larger chunk of territory than UN Resolution 242 stipulated. And to this day, they still have all that territory. They had never given any of that back, and they never will, even under the partition agreements for establishing Palestine, that have been recently established, uh, agreed to. It still contains most of the territory that was won in in 1948. So that's, I mean, they've been persecuted and they have responded. (laughs) Well, look what happened under Adolf Hitler. Look what happened in Europe prior to that. Look what happened in Russia prior to that, the pogroms. I mean, yeah, they've been an oppressed people. Well,
2: the United States, our Supreme Court justice, the woman, yeah, said when she was growing up, her family was uh, either not included in things or, mm-hmm. or she. You mean Ginsburg. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, she was oh, made fun Jude, of uh, in
0: school. Oh, it it was terrible. Yeah, in America, because I in, suspect in
2: it has to do with Jesus. Well, but if we Jesus was a Jew.
0: Well, it has to do with the horrible. Statement that the Jews killed Jesus—nonsense. Yeah. Firstly, the Romans killed Jesus. Now, Jewish leadership yep. brought charges, but the Jewish people aren't responsible for that. Certainly not the Jewish people of today or of the last two thousand years, because some stupid, idiotic, self-centered, self-serving leaders did it. Doesn't mean that all the people from then until forever bear it as their own guilt are you crazy even in those places where the new testament where it seems to make the claim that the people are saying that is an example of a bigotry that will you know will come in when we hit john the gospel of john
1: it's just an excuse to hate
0: of course it is because
1: if they know their religion we all killed christ he died for our sins precisely
0: <laughs> questions just so that you all know, the week before, in the evening session, this is as far as we got anyway, and, and we're going to have to review it because we had a small group there. And I, In listening to the audio from both sessions, I thought we needed to pin it down a little harder because what happens after this is we cover a section where both are, seem to be quoting from Mark. Then we quote a section where they're both expanding on what Mark says. Then we quote another section where there's a humongous expansion between the two of them, and there's only one line from Mark. And then you've got another one, and then another one, and then suddenly you're to what Matthew is alone, and then Matthew and Luke are together. And I think it's important to realize that what we're dealing with when we're working with Matthew and Luke relative to Mark and relative to what is not in Mark, all three felt free to use their sources and to write them down as best they could. We don't have as much access to what was behind what Mark wrote. That was Peter's teachings or whatever. Um, Matthew and Luke, we can kind of tell they're using the same source. You could see it today, couldn't you? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. You, you could see it today in, in what they cite Notice, we didn't really cover it, but where Matthew says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As opposed to, blessed are those who are hungry now. For they will be filled, for they will be filled. Now, in Luke it's literal. And Matthew it's been applied, it's been interpreted, it's been given a spiritual dimension. A spiritual dimension that lasts longer, has deeper meaning, has greater application, and is easier to preach on than Luke's. It's also the reason why Matthew you hear more frequently. Because it's easier to preach from Matthew to people who, quite frankly, know where their next meal is coming from, or the biggest, problem, the biggest problem that we face today is the argument in the car. Okay, what do you want to go eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? What do you want? Well, you decide. And then you, you drive to the place where you know you've decided to. And the instant you're getting ready to pull in the parking lot, the other person says, "But not there." <laughs> I mean, you know, come on. We've all now that is not hungry. And you know somebody says, "How are you doing?" I'm starving to death. And you look at them and you realize I've said that. You look at me and you realize you ain't starving. No, I'm hungry for Chinese food, uh, I, Yeah, I'm hungry. I could eat, but I'm not starving. And that's what they mean by hungry here. I well, mean, you—we
1: can't, can't even interpret our own language.
0: No, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. Matthew becomes easier to interpret. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. For a spiritual infilling of knowing what it means to be in the presence of God. Now that's a fabulous thing to say. And it's true. And it's theologically true. And it's in line with some things that Jesus teaches elsewhere. But when you don't know, when you really do not know, not just is it going to be Boston Market or McDonald's, but you don't have the money in your pocket and you don't have the food in your pantry. And you don't, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, literally, that's kind of what you're talking about in Luke. That's different. Now, if that's your... Now pull it back to theology. If that's where you are in searching for righteousness, you don't know where it's going to come from. You you know you can't make it yourself. You know you don't got it in your pocket. You know you don't have it in a shelf at home. You don't know where righteousness is going to come from. You know you need it. If you're in that circumstance, if you're in that situation in your spiritual life, then what he says does become true. For they will be filled. You, When you reach the point This is a spiritual truth. It's a spiritual truth that Matthew is picking up out of what Jesus taught via interpretation. When you are spiritually starving and thirsty and are not so arrogant as to think that you can supply your own righteousness, then you're able to receive God's righteousness. Then and only then, and that really does preach. That really does preach. And then you can make a connection. I have done this in a sermon in the past. I'm going to do it again. Uh, where I've taken hungering and thirsting for food. And, uh, you know, and, and, and to challenge people, you know, I've said, try fasting. I mean, some people have medical reasons why they have to be careful about fasting. But within those constraints... Try fasting for three days. After three days, you now know what this hunger is. Now equate that hunger to spiritual hunger, to spiritual thirst.
2: Now by fasting, you mean you just have water?
0: I mean, for me, just water. And one quarter of a piece of bread to take one of my pills with. Oh, and then the three and, and for three days.
2: You no, know, one day to do your colonoscopy. Faster. I have done <laughs> that. And actually I get less hungry instead of more.
1: After
0: the one. three days, the hunger declines.
1: Right. Hmm. Huh. But
0: for those first three days, you you get this pang. Hmm. It hurts. It's that then can be used to inform what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have that kind of a pang, that kind of a thirst for God's presence in your life. To the point that coming forward to receive Holy Communion in that tiny little bit of bread, in that tiny bit of juice, you can't even have chicken broth. <laughs> oh. because that's, that's what we have for colonoscopy. No. <laughs> chicken broth and what I was thinking. No, no, nothing. Water wow. and what you know if the doctor says, Well, you need to eat you know, you can't take your you must take your pills with food. Fine. The tiniest amount of food that is necessary to take your oh. pill with, you know, a quarter of a piece of bread for me will do it. And then that's it. Wow.
1: I think we have a hard time understanding this because we don't actually even doing food three days. is not hungry. Yeah, no, not really. And uh, you try for three weeks. Poor people. Yeah. I mean, we're not any of us rich, but we definitely are not poor.
0: We do not conceive and in so this you have country no today.
1: Yeah. Right. These people are going. Even up. the
0: people who come here to get food who are classifiable as poor by our government are not poor by these standards
2: right. mm-hmm.
0: they had a car they drove up in I mean come on Yeah. yeah. I the mean I just
2: somebody <laughs> leave. Is for the
0: most m. part <coughs> nice for the, for the <laughs> most part this nation with some exceptions I've been to some extremely poor areas of Appalachia where poverty levels yeah. are kind of getting towards what we're talking about back then but for the most part
1: We just don't
0: we do not conceive of poverty.
1: But right. for for the morning I think we can because we've all lost somebody and we know that eventually you do get over.
0: For the morning you can and you can bring yourself through fasting to the point of understanding what it truly means to pain in hunger. We can we can experience that. It can be done. And Three days will give you the experience. Try it for three weeks. First of all, for most people over the age of 25, it can be kind of dangerous Mm -hmm. to do it for that length of time. Um, But reduce your intake to the barest minimum. Don't just fast for three days and then start eating small amounts. You know, make sure that your caloric intake is maybe a thousand calories or so. That's still starvation calorie input. Anything under sixteen hundred. So just take a thousand, and 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 you're gonna you're gonna decline in weight no matter what you do, even laying still, because it takes more energy than that to beat your heart. And um, You'll start to feel it and do that for three weeks.
1: But in your mind, you know there's food there if you want it. No.
0: Yeah, I, I got the money in my wallet.
1: And poor people, that are hungry. Yes. Know take the, no take food the money there.
0: away. Take, that adds the dimension yeah. of what poverty adds to hunger, which we cannot experience unless our entire social circumstances change. We talk about the horrible things that have happened in our economy, and they have been horrible. Well, I'm going to tell you. Comparatively speaking, it's still not a patch on what these people experienced by poverty. And hunger, we can experience degrees of that, and what it feels like in here in terms of the pain, but not the emotional concern of now how am I gonna feed it? I know how I can feed it. There's a cracker barrel right over there. (laughs) There's there, you know, there are places to eat all over the place. And I could go through three months of that kind of fasting and still be overweight. That's not the issue. You still can experience the hunger sensation. And that hunger sensation then applies to the spiritual realm of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When one fasts, this is the purpose of fasting in the monastic life. When one fasts, one discovers that truly it's not the things of earth, it's not eating, it's not drinking, it's not the physical nourishment that's important. It's the spiritual nourishment. It's being close to God, it's being close to your neighbor, it's it's doing for God, it's doing for neighbor, and that's actually the same thing. It's 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 living, thirsting, and hungering for righteousness. The food simply makes it possible for the carrier that you're living in to continue working. All right? It's this other that's important, which is why Matthew preaches so well. It's why we know Matthew so well. It's because Luke's is harder to grasp in our context today. It's why I was saying earlier that those who live in a third world setting, their circumstances are probably reversed. Luke coheres better with them emotionally, internally, whereas Matthew they probably get mentally. Kind of the reverse of us. Questions, thoughts.
2: Well, this was meant for it to bring people hope, but we sort of got depressed in bit middle of these problems. Yeah, but this, the, it, I'm sure at the time it brought hope to the people. It
0: brings hope to people today. It brings it. it even the woes, you know, we sometimes we kind of dwell on those woes in Luke. But if you think about it, it, it also it, it brings balance to to reality that yeah you're happy now but be balanced in that rejoicing you know there's going to be a morning
2: well this is why they said Jesus is the good news yeah but I don't want to
1: say that you're happy now but you're going to be sad because you think gosh tomorrow will be sad no no that's <laughs> no, no not, tomorrow that's, tomorrow. that's, that's
0: <laughs> not the intent you're not going to be happy forever <laughs> think about it this way like,
1: I not think you. I am
0: okay <laughs> think about it this way who here has ever owned a pet
1: yes
0: now you know that pet is wonderful sweet you love that pet that pet brings you great life and great joy while you have that pet but guess what you know until you get towards the end of your life you know that you're going to outlive that animal barring accident and you're going to have to suffer and cry because that pet has died i've been through that a bunch in my life I always go out and get another pet. I get another dog, get another cat. Because the joy of having that dog or that cat with me during its life, so far outweighs the pain of its death. And the memory of the joy of those pets that goes beyond the pain of their death, far outweighs the pain of the death. So the joy is actually far greater than the sorrow But keep in mind that the sorrow does come still. Be balanced on it. I know people who have hurt so at the loss of a loved pet, they refuse to get another one. To me, that is allowing the pain and the sorrow and the mourning to rule you. Same could be said for a spouse, for a child or a parent. You can't go out and get another parent. Kind of hard to get another child. But I'm but gonna you, tell know you, you,
1: lose you know you're going to
0: lose them but you don't start mourning ahead of time you rejoice while you have them and then you rejoice in the memory of them the memory of them and the realization that they really aren't far from you they may not be right here but they're right here I want them right here but, but, but they're right here and that's actually closer and you thank God for that, at least, even though you wish they were next to you. And, and then you move forward. And you can never replace, but you, you then share with others and, uh, your love. Greg,
1: the part okay. about hungering and thirsting after yes. righteousness. Yes. I mean, if you're equating that to being very hungry. Like when you know you
0: have an emptiness there, and you don't know where you're gonna fill it. Uh, Some of the theologians of the last century talked about a God-shaped hole in your heart. That money, food, and relationships, and, and possessions will not fill. Only God will fill that hole. And that kind of thing is what you're talking about. And hungering for food is simply a way of experiencing the kind of emotional emptiness uh, in a physical sense that, you're exp- that you have spiritually when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the point is, is that when you realize that you can't fill it yourself, when, when the true poor cannot afford food for themselves, when you, you, they have to be invited to the banquet when you can't fill it, yours—it's—it's part of the essence of communion. We come and we receive at the table that which we ourselves did not bring, but we just bring ourselves, and we receive freely God's gift of grace. We don't produce it ourselves. We don't generate it ourselves. We don't pull it up out of our insides. We receive it in. And the same thing is true spiritually. We, we come and we receive from God all that we need to be righteous because we can't be righteous ourselves. So you realize you are true, true, you're in true spiritual poverty. A poverty you cannot change. You can't get a job to make yourself spiritually rich. You, you, you simply receive it. It simply is a gift. And to be spiritually poor, to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, is simply to come to the point where you realize you can't produce it yourself. You cannot go out and get it yourself. You don't have any of the resources you need to get it. You cannot generate it within yourself. It has to be given to you. That's the essence there. When you reach that point of realizing you can't do it yourself, you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself perfect. You can't live according to God's will yourself. You have to receive it from God. When you reach that point, then you will be filled. It's so long as you're thinking you can save yourself, so long as you're thinking you can you can obey the law and do what God wants you to do yourself, and therefore you're going to get your own righteousness and you're going to get bennies for it, well, you're going to have brownie points with God for that. Well, you're, you're, you're never going to be filled. You're always going to be empty. Because you can never attain it yourself. It's the point where this is the exact point where where what Jesus says about God's riches of, of righteousness being poured out to us right here is... is What Paul picks up on in his letters when he says that salvation comes by grace through faith and not through works. We cannot work ourselves into heaven. We are given it. And we simply respond. That's what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is. Coming to the point to realize we don't do it ourselves. We receive it. And when we receive it, we then have to contend with the problem of being oppressed for it, which is what you have in 5, 11, and 12, and Luke 6, 22, and 23. Next week, we'll pick up and walk our way through several more of these uh, passages that uh, give seem to be either Matthew and Luke bouncing off of what Mark says and, and filling in with Q, Um, and we'll take a look at some of those.
1: Can I ask another question? Sure. Is Q considered one body of work by one author or is it several sources? It's one
0: body of work by one or two authors. And when I say one or two, I mean one principal author and an editor because it seems as though it's a a compilation of stuff of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught orally, somebody wrote it down. And that writing down occurred pretty quickly after the death and resurrection of Jesus because Paul's quoting it in Greek in 50. In 1 Corinthians and in Romans in the 50s, he's quoting it in Greek, which means between 33 AD and 55 AD, it's had to have been written down in Aramaic, compiled, and then translated into Greek, and that's a pretty lengthy process. So probably by, say Jesus dies in 32, then by 38 to 40, it's been written down in Aramaic, and it was written in apparently three layers. The first clump of it, which is part of this stuff here and some more that we'll come to later, the first part of it was the body of teachings that traveling evangelists needed to then go out, who did not know Jesus, to then go out and teach people the teachings of Jesus. They could teach him about Jesus without needing a collection of things, of teachings, but, because that's simply what's called the kerygma, the the story about Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that they knew. But this material is harder, and therefore they had to have it written down. So the teachings of Jesus were written down I say by 40, at the latest in Aramaic, in this initial core. And then several, uh, like one or two layers more were added on that contained additional teachings of Jesus that are a little more lengthy than Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, you know, blessed, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, And those extra layers, kind of like an onion, those extra layers got added on a little later, but not much because by 45 to 50, it was translated into Greek. in in a coherent whole because Paul quotes from it several times in 1 Corinthians Paul quotes from it several times in Romans and both of those letters are written in the 50s so so we know that it had to have been written down and translated before Paul got it and you have to have a period of time in there for its transmission, for its being copied several times before Paul ever got his hands on a copy of it and it appears as though Paul's reading from a copy of it, and so he's and quoting directly, if not from memory. It looks like he's quoting directly. Therefore, he's got to have a copy in hand, and that's not always easy to have early on. So you're talking not a large chunk of period of time in there between when Jesus dies and when it gets written down, and then it gets formalized. And there's lots of scholars who say there were three versions of Q uh that seemed to be circulating around and then they got standardized when they got translated. Uh, that's, that's too much complication for me. To me, it seems more likely that there was simply one basic version of this thing that was used by traveling evangelists early on in their preaching about the life of Jesus, about the teachings of Jesus, and that it, that it got translated into Greek for those who were going out into the Gentile world to do the same thing, people like Paul, and then... Um, got used by Paul, quoted in two of his letters, and then got used by Matthew and Luke in writing their Gospels. And, apparently was known to John in the writing of his Gospel, but he doesn't quote it much. Because it's already been quoted. He's he's doing more. He's going beyond that. He's theologizing beyond that. He's pulling other sources as well. And so that's what John is doing. But John seems to be aware of Q. I mean, you see echoes of q in john it's just not quotes unlike matthew and luke so that q is a is a work a writing originally in aramaic then translated into greek and dating no later than 40 for the aramaic version no later than 50 for the greek version can't be any later than greek 50 Otherwise, there's not enough time for Paul to have gotten a copy of it in Greek to then quote.
2: So that means he was probably a Jew?
0: Oh, it was written by a Jewish Christian. It was written by a Jewish, the the earliest edition, the earliest layer was written down by a Jewish Christian who probably knew Jesus. That's why many people think it was Matthew or someone like him. Someone who was educated I mean Matthew would have to have been educated Because he was a tax collector He had to be able to count and read and write To take records So Matthew was probably One of the few disciples of Jesus Who could read and write So he's the best candidate He's also the oldest He's the best candidate amongst the disciples To have been able to write it down In early church traditions said he did become a diary or whatever not so much a diary as he simply wrote it down after the fact after Jesus died he didn't think he was going to need to write it down during Jesus' life then after Jesus died and was raised and all and after the preaching is going on for a while and he's realizing we got people who are going out to preach about Jesus who never knew Jesus who never heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount here let me write it down so they can go out and preach from this And know what Jesus said, and then that's kind of how it happened, and that that phase of it couldn't have been happened any later than forty. It probably started in the mid thirties. He probably wrote it down in sections, and then it got distributed that way.
1: It looked like he would have been the main source.
0: Well, I happen to believe that Matthew was the principal author of Q that the Gospel of Matthew got its name principally because it's heavily based on Matthew and Mark. Mark's based on Peter's teachings about the life of Jesus, which does contain such some of te- Jesus' teachings, but it's mostly about the life of Jesus, which is different. I mean, it's not the same body of material. There is some overlap and some connection. We'll start seeing that next week. but um, uh, but So you've got these two sources. You've got Matthew in Q, and you've got Peter in Mark, and then you've got the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew taking Mark and Q plus their own independent sources and creating their two Gospels. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas,
1: 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.